You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. I'm old, Marty. Oh, Mr. Templeton, you can never be old. Old? And getting older every minute that we stand here speaking. They say, or at least they've said it in most of my plays, that when a man achieves years, he achieves reason and contentment. I haven't. Mr. Templeton, may I suggest that possibly this isn't the day for you to go down there? Uh, perhaps I should telephone the theater and explain that you can't start rehearsals. Well, thank you, Marty. But I'll go down there. I shall rehearse this play and it will open. I shall cover up the years with makeup. And I shall stand in the right places and hope to say the right lines. And when it's over, they'll all say to me, you were wonderful, Mr. Templeton. Booth Templeton is a man of refinement. He's handsome, well-dressed, well-spoken, and he has a young, beautiful wife. But the years are catching up, and he hasn't achieved the contentment that he hoped time would bring. That young wife of his seems to be busying herself with an array of young hunks, but Templeton has moved past the point of caring. He's an actor, and his fire for that seems to have gone out too. Now he just goes through the motions, and the only thing that seems to bring him any happiness is his memory of Laura, his first wife. And she was 18 when they married, and 25 when she died. Laura. The freshest, most radiant creature God ever created. Eighteen when I married her, Marty. Twenty-five when she died. Why did he have to take her? Please, Mr. Templeton, sir, don't do this to yourself. You know, there are some moments in life that have an indescribable loveliness to them. Those moments with Laura all I have left now. What a nice touch that was. You know, Templeton stands talking about his memories of the past. And then, as he holds this musical box, the music stops. And the ballerina stops turning. Because that time's over now. So what is the trouble with Templeton? Let's find out. Pleased to present for your consideration, Mr. Booth Templeton. Serious and successful star of over 30 Broadway plays, who is not quite all right today. Yesterday and its memories is what he wants. And yesterday is what he'll get. Soon his years and his troubles will descend on him in an avalanche. In order not to be crushed, Mr. Booth Templeton will escape from his theater and his world and make his debut on another stage in another world that we call the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 9th of December 1960, written by E. Jack Newman and directed by Buzz Kulik. Now we've seen Buzz Kulik's work before in The Twilight Zone, 
Luke came across him when he reviewed King Nine Will Not Return at the beginning of Season 2, and this is his second Twilight Zone episode, and he'll direct another seven before the end of the show, including the classic A Game of Pool. Now the writer, E. Jack Newman, though, is someone we're meeting for the first and last time in the Twilight Zone. Mark Zickery says in the Twilight Zone Companion that Newman was the writer of 11 television pilots which became TV series, including Dr. Kildare and Police Story. Now that's not a bad hit rate for getting pilots going. If you look down his resume, he does just seem to write things and move on. I think the most he ever really commits to a show are about three episodes. So maybe that's just the way he worked, and maybe that's why he only has one Twilight Zone episode to his name. Now, in unlocking the door to a television classic, uh, Rod Serling kind of gives a bit of background on the process of receiving scripts and so on from unsolicited sources. And he says, I read every new script submitted to me. So far, I've waded through 200, and here's what I found. Some 90% were poorly written by non-pros. Most of the others were sent in by pros and sized up merely as smooth hack work. Still, I continue my reading. So this script by E. Jack Newman became the first script from an outsider other than Charles Beaumont or Richard Matheson to receive a contract. So, as has become somewhat traditional now, let's take a look at that Rod Sailing opener narration. And it's a good one, I think, as Templeton leaves the room, Rod Sailing is stood to the left of the shot as the camera pans across. He's very much in the shot, which I like. But it doesn't have that awkwardness that we saw in The Lateness of the Hour. He is that presence in the Twilight Zone. So Booth Templeton is in a play and it's got a new director who we're told has pep and zip and he's very much a next big thing kind of director with a no-nonsense attitude and the play takes place at the Savoy Theatre. And Martin Grams Jr. points out that the Savoy Theatre is the same theatre featured in Where Is Everybody and verbally mentioned by the wooden dummy in The Dummy and both episodes were scripted by Rod Serling, and Martin Grams Jr. thinks this is another suggestive instance where Serling may have had a hand in revising bits and pieces of teleplays by other writers. So maybe there are a few Rod Serling touches in this one that we just don't know about. Some of us are young. Some of us are old. But neither state precludes any of us, young or old, from ignoring the basic cooperation that will be necessary here. When I direct, there are no significant personalities in the cast of any play. But there are three significant dates in the life of a play. The first day of rehearsal, opening night, closing night. The last two are related and dependent upon the first. Therefore, the first day of rehearsal is an extremely important date. When I call rehearsal for 12 o'clock, Templeton, I'm at 12 o'clock for everyone, young and old. Everyone to be in his place and ready to work at 12 o'clock sharp. Are you ready to work with us, Templeton? 
Now here's one of those faces that a lot of people of a certain age will know, Sidney Pollock, he's the one playing this young up-and-coming director. Now this is relatively early in his television acting career, but he would go on fairly quickly to become a real part of the establishment as both an actor and a director. He directed films like The Firm, starring Tom Cruise, Tootsie with Dustin Hoffman, and Out of Africa with Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. But he cut his teeth as a director with shows like Craft Suspense Theatre or The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And he was actually due to direct a film by Rod Serling called A Time of Glory, but sadly he never got it off the ground. And Sidney Pollock died in 2008. Now Mark Zickrey in The Twilight Zone Companion says that ironically the part Pollock played in Templeton was that of an abrasive young stage director and Buzz Kulik admits that the role had a bit of a private joke to it and he says he and I knew a producer director in New York and I didn't think very kindly of this man he and I had our struggles through the years and so had Sidney and the thing about this fellow, this man we were vaguely imitating, was that he came from Georgia. He had lost his accent, much of it, except that when he became angry or uptight or nervous, he fell back into his youthful patois. We had to give this character some kind of additional colour, so we thought, let's make him this fellow that we both knew. So the impression that we get from our main character, Booth Templeton, is that He's a bit of an elder statesman of the theatre, that type of figure. He's been in 30 hit Broadway plays and he carries some clout. Now we see this in everyday life. It's like when you've been in a job for a while and you've paid your dues and you've earned the respect of your boss and your colleagues. So you get a certain amount of leeway that maybe someone more junior or less well regarded wouldn't get. But with this new director, all of that seems to have gone out the window. This peppy, zippy young guy is here to make his mark, and he doesn't care about what's gone before. He's just here to get the job done, and to do it his way, and to prove himself. Which puts Templeton on the back foot somewhat, and he leaves the theatre. But when he leaves, he enters the Twilight Zone. So Booth Templeton is played by Brian Ahern. And he was a British actor, born in England in 1902. But then he moved to America in the 30s. And he's not one of our typical Twilight Zone actors who jumps from show to show. He's a little different. He spent the 30s and 40s in movies. And by the time television was becoming more commonplace in the 50s, he did make that transition there. But his resume suggests that he only did a couple of episodes of television a year rather than a dozen or more like you'd often see with other actors. Now of course, after having been born just after the turn of the century, he would have been in his 50s at that time and he'd already had a successful film career behind him. So he may have been picking his projects with a bit more care and a bit more of a relaxed attitude than most actors of the time who were younger and trying to make a living off it and Brian Ahern died in 1986. Now Brian Ahern said of working on the Twilight Zone, when I first read the script I thought the writer must surely be out of his head. 
Then, Rod Sailing suggested I have a look at one of the earlier shows. I'd never seen it before, as I'm not much of a TV fan. Then I realised what the Twilight Zone meant, and that the script was really an excellent one. And the director Buzz Kulik had this to say about Brian Ahern. He said, Brian Ahern was just a charming, wonderful, delightful man. A terribly professional man, and one of the nicest people that I've ever worked with. He was very touched by what he had to do. It was very, very real to him. And Kulik himself said that maybe it was because it was about show business. Maybe because I could relate to it myself much more than most things. But I've always had a very special affection for that show. So our leading man, Brian Ahern, I've got to say I have uh, I have a lot of love for what he did in this episode. He, he is a, a very elder statesman kind of figure. You know, you could see that in younger life he was a very... A dashing handsome man and he's still a handsome man as he gets older but obviously he slowed down a little and the, the years kind of take their toll but you know he's still very dashing very well turned out very well groomed and I could imagine that off stage off set he would be as well turned out as you can see that Templeton is in the show so I, I really like what he does in this and there's a lot of emotion in that performance so it's a shame we never see him in more Twilight Zones because I think for the one that he did do, he does a, a really excellent job. Like I say, he is very debonair, he's very suave, so it comes as no surprise that he was one of the actors to play the saint, Simon Templer, on the CBS radio series in 1945. So it becomes very apparent very quickly that Booth Templeton has gone back into his past over 30 years, in fact, in 1927, and his wife, Laura, is waiting for him. Oh, please, please, listen to me, listen to me, won't you? Laura, Laura, something's happened. Something very strange. Please, try to understand. This, this isn't makeup. I've grown older, darling. In another world, many, for many, many lonely years, I've had only a memory of you to live on. You too, Barney. Why, you were my one and only best friend. But both of you have been only memories for a long time. And now, tonight, or today, or whatever it is, and wherever I am in, in space or time, I have you back again. Now, as a fan of Americana and the look of classic America, you know, I very much like the location here with the vintage cars, the streets, and I can't find mention of where that is. Maybe it's just some backlot or something, but it looks good. In relation to the story, this is the time of Prohibition, and we're right in the middle of it, to be exact. The ban on selling, producing, importing and transporting alcoholic drinks in the US, which lasted from 1920 to 1933. So it's an interesting time in American history, you know, without going too deeply into it. Actual private possession and consumption of alcohol wasn't restricted by federal law, but local laws could be more strict, so in those circumstances it could be. In areas where possession wasn't illegal, it was the poor who would often be the ones who were criminalised for buying booze or just denied it outright. 
You see, when prohibition was coming in, the rich had the money to stock up their cellars and they would buy the inventories of liquor stores and wholesalers so they would have it there on hand and wouldn't be breaking the law for having a drink in their own home. But the poor couldn't afford to do this, so, you know, trying to procure a bottle of booze on, on Friday night could get you into trouble. So there is this argument that we still have today in relation to some things that if you make something illegal and it goes underground under the control of the criminals, in that sense, it shifts the harm to other things, you know, the violence associated with underground business like that, that kind of thing. So it is quite a fascinating time in American history for me, and it has supplied us with hundreds of hours of entertainment as a result. People on both sides of the law at that time have become characters in popular entertainment. People like Elliot Ness, people like Al Capone. We've become so used to them in fictionalized versions of that time that you, you could almost think that they were created as fictional characters. So Booth goes to meet Laura in a speakeasy and it kind of feeds into uh, the whole kind of ethos of this episode for me. Now, speakeasies were illegal drinking clubs, so there would be this risk of being raided. You know, what a great setup this is, what a great sequence in the episode. You know, the music, the people, the atmosphere. I think it's a beautifully done scene and who knows what a speakeasy was like at this time, but if it was anything like this, then I think I'd take the risk of going there for a drink. What I think it feeds into so well is the theme of this episode. You can't go back because things in our past are made up of the things that are going on at the time. It can be made up of the location, the people, your situation itself, you know? So it's kind of a combination of things that will make a time special. So, so if you look at a speakeasy club, you could say it was at a time when alcohol was illegal so that people would get together and do it under the radar and not with any great uh, criminality. They just wanted to have fun. So, you know, sometimes under these circumstances, it becomes even more of a, a party because you're not allowed to do it. So it's, uh, you know, it's a time and a place. And I think that's very much the theme of this episode. But we'll talk a bit more about that later on. So back to the episode. Booth Templeton has gone back in time and he goes into the speakeasy. And his wife Laura, who he spoke of so fondly, is here. Now a friend of Booth's is also there, a gentleman by the name of Barney, who was played by... Charles S. Carlson, who only had seven years worth of credits to his name on IMDb, and I can't really find any more information on him than that. Now, Templeton is trying to convince Laura to go somewhere quieter with him, but Barney and Laura are very dismissive of him, giving them the brush off until things come to a head. Laura, Laura, come with me. You're a silly old fool of a man. That's for me. Stop it, stop it. Why don't you go back where you came from? We don't want you here.
So Laura goes on the dance floor and dances away like her life depended on it, and Templeton leaves. Then we have maybe the centerpiece scene of this whole episode. It is very poignant and it is quite haunting. When Templeton leaves, everyone in the speakeasy stops and Lorna and Barney stop and they look out after Templeton and it's quite obvious that all wasn't as it seemed and they did care for him and doing what they've just done has taken some emotional toll on them to do it. So Templeton walks out and he finds himself back in his own time. Pippa Scott is the actor who played Laura Templeton and Pippa was born in 1935 in New York and like her co-star Brian Ahern, we can't really describe her as one of our typical actors of the time either. She was certainly working, but I think she was a little young to feature in a lot of the shows that our other Twilight Zone actors were in. She would have been about 25 when this episode was made. And it's only when you sit and think about it that you realise that most of our Twilight Zone actors are quite mature in years, you know, 30 or older. Now, of course, there are younger characters, but the leads tend to be older people. And I think, you know, maybe that's just the way things were then. Maybe that's how television was. Or maybe it's because a lot of the Twilight Zone is often about reflection, you know. But that's just an observation on my part. I'm happy to report, though, that although she slowed down in terms of acting roles in the 80s and beyond, she did still keep her hand in. And her work went beyond acting into some very worthwhile places. Pippa Scott established Linden Productions in order to develop and produce a series of documentaries related to conflict and human rights violations. And she actually wrote and directed a documentary called King Leopold's Ghost in 2006, which was about the exploitation of the Congo by King Leopold of Belgium. You know, a little obscure perhaps, it's not something that I know about, but I guess that's the point. And the official site is still live if you want to go and check it out. And that's kingleopoldsghost.com. What to do when Booth comes back? Table in speakeasy. Enter Booth as Laura throws back her head and laughs too shrilly. You're a scream, Barney, a real... Barney, the same. To know him is to love him. Sit down, old chap. Laura. Why don't you go back where you came from? We don't want you here. Acting. They were acting for me. They wanted me to go back to my own life. And live it. So it's obvious that things went as they seem and Templeton has a script in his pocket that he picked up earlier on in the episode. He realises that Laura and Barney were just playing a part to, uh, to help him move on. So a bit of a risky game there and potentially a very noble sacrifice on Laura's part. 
She risked sullying Templeton's memories of her so he could go back to his own time and move on. So how does all this work? You know, we've seen Twilight Zone episodes where people go into the past. If you look at walking distance, that springs to mind. But nobody in the past was aware that Martin Sloan was coming or who he was when he got there until he told them. So how did Laura and Barney know? Did someone tip them off a week earlier so that they could write a script and round up a ton of extras for the speakeasy, you know? It's a Twilight Zone happening that seems to go a step beyond the usual Twilight Zone happenings in that it's not just a singular occurrence where someone is placed in an unusual situation. So it's a very noble thing that Laura has done. You have to ask yourself, would you damage someone's perception of you, someone who cares for you deeply, if it was for their own good? I think we all hope we would, but it's a tough one, and it's not the kind of sacrifice you'd feel good about making. But this time it works out probably better than Laura had hoped, because Templeton had picked up that script of what they'd planned, and he knew that she did it for him. So faith restored, but also lesson learned. Buzz Kulik said that the biggest concern we had was that we would make sure that everybody understood that she was playing a part and that she was really forcing herself to do this to get him to go back. And then he adds, it seemed to work. So Templeton walks back into the Savoy Theatre with an air of authority and confidence, but not so much as to be overbearing, but just enough that he gets his message across. And he earns this young director's respect, but he gives a little back. He says, you are right, the first day of rehearsals is the most important in the life of the play. You know, I sit and I watch this episode and it does make me quite thoughtful. I have seen it before and I think as a younger man I probably didn't pay it the mind that I do now because it's all about life experience. Even though this isn't a Rod Serling written episode, I think the writer Newman has very much tapped into a very real part of getting older, the way Rod Serling often did so effortlessly. I do wonder if it were a Rod Serling story, would he have made that trip to the past play out slightly differently, where the people in the past didn't need that knowledge of Templeton's impending return. You see, Serling had a way of making things look simple. You just drop that person where they need to be, and the reactions of the people around them take care of the story. But in this case, like I said earlier, the characters in the past needed that prior knowledge of Templeton coming back, so it's a bit more complicated than your average Twilight Zone. But I don't think it damages anything. I very much like that, that a female character, Laura, has made this very noble gesture and potentially a sacrifice which allows Templeton to move on you know, at the time, especially, there were probably a lot more stories of men making those gestures. You know, Casablanca springs to mind. But if they didn't have that foreknowledge of Templeton coming back, we wouldn't have that moment where everything just stops and Laura looks after Templeton as he leaves. And that is a really great moment that I wouldn't want to be without. So I guess I justify it to myself that 
I like to think that maybe those characters, Laura and Barney, were having their own little brush with the Twilight Zone in their time. Perhaps some mysterious stranger brought Laura that script and said, this is what you need. So the writer Newman said, I had often toyed with the notion of you can't go home again, and it should have been, you shouldn't go home again, ever. Which is what I was trying to say here. So it's something we're all going to face as we get older. Like I say, I think it is a very Rod Serling-esque way of looking at life and getting older. Not old, just older. You don't have to be old to, to kind of have things to look back on. You know, I myself have moments in life where everything just seemed to be just right. You know, a certain time, a certain place, a certain group of people around you, or a certain person you were with. You know, a combination of things that just fit together perfectly a time and a place that you might never really want to leave but things change people change and people move on i remember when i was younger there was a club that i used to always go to with my friends and i was there most weekends you know it was my place it was our place with you know my friends my people and there were friends there acquaintances who we would walk in there each week and and get to know and we'd go in there ready for that night's adventure and who knows where we'd end up or who we'd end up with but as things go on certain friends move away we got older we had responsibilities and over time we went less and less and that magic kind of dissipated and disappeared and we did have a reunion of sorts years later and we went back there but we weren't quite the same people you know we all had different experiences in life now new priorities and don't get me wrong it was fun but it wasn't our place anymore now it was for those other people who go and had made it their own since we left and it's kind of a bittersweet experience doing things like that you know it's good to go back and remember those times but there's a certain amount of sadness that you'll never really be able to recapture those moments again so it is slightly ironic that our main players in this episode of The Twilight Zone are only one-night players. E. Jack Newman only wrote this one Twilight Zone script. Brian Ahern and Pippa Scott only appeared in this one. Buzz Kulik, the director, he did go back. And amongst those episodes that he went back and did, our favourites like 100 Yards Over the Rim and A Game of Pool, so maybe there's a lesson there too. You know, we're not just limited to one time, one moment of magic in our lives. We can have more. So if you do find yourself in one of those sweet spots, a time when circumstances come together to create a special time, just try and recognize it for what it is and enjoy it as much as you can. But even when it does end, it doesn't mean that it's going to be the only time. Mr. Booth Templeton, who shared with most human beings the hunger to recapture the past moments, the ones that soften with the years. But in his case, the characters of his past blocked him out and sent him back to his own time, which is where we find him now. Mr. Booth Templeton, who had a round-trip ticket into the Twilight Zone. Let's take a listen to some of the Twilight Zone thoughts of our listeners with Submitted for your approval.
A friend of the show called Mark sent in an email and he said, Hello Tom, I've written before but it has been quite a while. I'm very pleased to have you back hosting the show and even more pleased that the episodes have been so regular. I wanted to drop a line regarding the lateness of the hour. I don't recall seeing this one when I was younger, but along the time you started the podcast several years ago, I began watching the series from the beginning in order. I vividly remember the evening I came to the lateness of the hour. My son, who was around 10 at the time, was watching it with me. It was a Friday night and we were in the middle of a marathon. Our viewing began with The Howling Man, which is of course excellent, and my son commented that he found it creepy. I was curious what he would think of I Have the Beholder, one of my favourites. He asked several times why you couldn't see anyone's faces, but if he figured out the twist ahead of time, he never said it out loud. He was well and truly repulsed by the pig-like faces, and as the episode closed, I got the feeling that perhaps watching two such intense episodes late at night was too much for a still young fellow with an active imagination to take. However, he told me he was up for more, so we kept watching. He liked Nick of Time mostly because of Captain Kirk, and we just decided just one more before bedtime. The lateness of the hour was rather underwhelming for both of us. For myself, as a fan of Asimov's robot stories, which predated the original airing of the episode, I found it derivative and dull. My son predicted that the daughter was a robot, and of course he was right. The concept of whether robots are alive or not has been used and reused so much over the past decades that the concept alone isn't really enough to hold our interest. It needs a little something extra. Blade Runner, the iRobot film, and Spielberg's AI use this concept to great effect by adding in elements of mystery, adventure, and emotion, as well as impressive visuals. The lateness of the hour has to stand largely on the concept alone, and it's not enough to save it. Perhaps if we hadn't watched it after such iconic episodes, or if it weren't filmed on videotape, or if the concept wasn't as well trodden, this episode would have, made, would have made a better impression. But as it was, we decided enough was enough and ended our marathon due to the lateness of the hour. Please forgive the pun. Anyway, just a few thoughts for you. Thanks again for all you do with the podcast. I know it takes a considerable effort and I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work and I look forward to your next offering. Well, thank you for that, Mark. Um, you know, I think expectation can play a part in things, and I, I appreciate that. Watching the lateness of the hour after two such great episodes can really be a bit of a downer, and I think expectation played a part in it for me too. I think I had such a, a downer on these videotaped episodes in my memory that I was expecting it to be really terrible. And I think it was a bit of a surprise for me that it, it wasn't terrible, it was better than I remembered, but you're right, it is still a very flat episode, and there are much better things, even at that time, that were exploring these questions about when does artificial life become life. But thanks for sharing your memories there, Mark, I appreciate it. Okay, I had an email from a gentleman by the name of Nate. He says, Hello Tom, allow me first to say that I've really enjoyed your podcast on the Twilight Zone and I thank you for what you've done to give a look at the influence this series has had 
over the generations. Like Rod Serling and a number of your other call-ins, I'm also from Binghamton, New York. Today I came across an article, which he's included a link to here, and wanted to bring it to your attention, if you haven't seen it already. Apparently, the Bundy Museum of History and Art in Binghamton will be hosting a six-month exhibition of Twilight Zone props, and best of all, guests will be able to handle the props. Since I live in North Carolina now, I wasn't able to check out the opening of the exhibit, although I hope to make a visit before the six months run. I also wanted to mention something about the Twilight Zone episode Walking Distance. I know a lot of people write in about this episode, and I don't mean to beat it to death, but there's something about the episode that strikes me deeply, especially as the years go by while away from my hometown. The Binghamton area has for the past century been known for its number of free carousels. In fact, it is sometimes referred to as the carousel capital of the United States. Having worked for the Parks and Recreation Department there, I'd have to say that I have a connection to them as well. I'm telling you this because I find it appropriate that Rod Serling, who was thinking about his childhood home while he wrote Walking Distance, would end the episode at the foot of the carousel. One of the carousels in Binghamton includes a panoramic memorial to the Twilight Zone. I've included an article about that as well. So I will put links to those articles on the show notes if you want to check them out. So thanks very much, Nate. Again, you know, some great Twilight Zone memories there from a Binghamton native, you know. I, uh, I really would like to visit there someday, but uh, unfortunately I'm not going to get to that exhibit either, but you never know. I had a quick email from a friend of the show, Andrew Schneider, and uh, he sent a um, an article over about the director, Richard L. Bear, who has just died, unfortunately, at the age of 101. But, um, you know, that's a, that's a good age for a man who's given us some great Twilight Zone episodes. So it is sad, but it's a life well lived. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll all join me in sending our good wishes and thanks to him and his family. Now, in the past, we've had uh, feedback from a friend of the show called Gus, and he sent in an audio clip for our uh, listening pleasure now. So let's uh, let's have a listen to that. Hey, Tom. Uh, really, really enjoyed the recent podcast about Nick of Time. Um, there are one or two little pieces of related trivia that came to mind while I was listening. As you probably know, the Mystic Seer fortune dispenser was actually a modified Swami fortune teller slash napkin holder. Uh, these were put out by the F.E. Erickson Company in the 50s and 60s, and you can still find them in antique stores and on eBay for between two and $300 U.S., which leads to a fun connection. Uh, one of my other all-time favorite shows is David Lynch's Twin Peaks, and I've seen every episode half a dozen times, but until the recent Blu-ray release with its fantastic new high-def transfer, I never even noticed that there in Norma's Double R Diner is one of the original Swami fortune dispensers right there on the main counter. Sadly, it only appears in the pilot because it's the only episode which was actually shot on location at a diner in Snoqualmie, Washington, while the subsequent episodes were shot on a soundstage recreation. But um, I don't know, I think it's a fun little piece of television trivia that links together two pretty amazing cult shows. One other tidbit you probably already know, just a few years ago, the U.S. toy company Biff Bang Pow 
released a scale replica of the Mystic Seared Napkin Holder slash Fortune Dispenser. It was claimed that they were a limited edition, but they still seem to be readily available online. It retails for between two and three hundred dollars as well, uh, which seems a bit steeply priced, but as an owner of one, I can say that it's worth every penny. It's a sturdy metal working replica that comes with a big pile of fortune cards, um, like the ones featured in the episode, um, though sadly no others, so they do tend to repeat a little bit. Um, and while the bobblehead may not be exact, as there was no original to be found, from what I understand, for the mold, so this version is a hand-sculpted approximation, but it's pretty damn good. Uh, it's also worth noting that there are a few different variations of that available. It's uh, There's a real nice all-red version, there's also a black-and-white version, and then there's one that's kind of in the middle with a red body and a grayscale head. Um, and then there's also a limited batch that were signed by William Shatner, so those tend to be harder to find and a bit pricier. Uh, not much else to say about it, but if you're a fan of this episode, or of prop replicas in general, the Mystic Seer is definitely top-notch. Oh, and before I go, the same company also released a working Talkie Tina replica, which is just as amazing and guaranteed to freak out house guests without fail. Well, uh, that's all for me. Thanks again, Tom. Looking forward to the next installment. Take care. Thank you, Gus. That's uh, that's some great feedback there and some really good information. I wasn't aware of all of that. So, you know, if you know something that I've missed in any of the episodes, then like Gus, send it in because it's all good stuff and it it adds to the colour of the show. That um, that Mystic Seer is something I have seen. I would really like to have one myself, but that price is uh, a little steep, you know, but um, what can you do? But it kind of feeds into something that I wanted to mention. So thank you for that, Gus. And uh, I do like getting audio clips on the show. It's, uh, it really does add some colour. But recently I have been doing some uh, YouTube videos of me opening Twilight Zone related products. Now, there are five episodes on YouTube at the moment, and uh, the first two are actually just ports of the podcast looking at Twilight Zone the game and um, that terrible book by Rain, uh, Wayne Roland Melton. So they're just kind of portovers of the podcast. But then in episode three, it's actually, you know, I got a webcam. I'm, I'm not going to lie, it's not the best produced video in the world, but hopefully, you know, it's all about the products. And in episode three, I take a look at some Rod Serling-inspired uh, vinyl stickers that were sent to me by a chap called Jacob, who has a website called... Uh, vinylsmack.com so I have a look at those they're a nice little product there and you can check out that video uh, in episode 4 I actually play Twilight Zone the game on the video now I did do that audio review of it and you know I didn't like it but I'm still kind of describing a game to you over a podcast where the best way to review a game is to show footage of the game so that's what I do in episode 4 and in episode 5, I look at a piece of merchandise from the company Biff Bang Pow, uh, which is like a, uh, a time enough at last um, kind of book box, you know. So check out that video too. If you go to the website, you can get to it by going to the thetwilightzonenetwork.com and there's a link sort of at the top just under the title bar that says YouTube Shows. You can get to it there and go and check it out and please you know subscribe on youtube because i will be doing 
more of these videos down the line. You know, like I say, I'm no professional with video, I'm just kind of finding my way a bit, so they're not the best produced in the world, but hopefully, you know, you will enjoy them. So that's enough from me now. I just will give a quick mention to some of the other stuff going on at the website Gentleman's Grindhouse Records, especially a podcast that I'm doing called Gentleman's Grindhouse Radio. Now, if you like the Twilight Zone interviews that I've done in the past, then hopefully you'll like this show. You know, at the time of putting this out, there should be three episodes out, and the newest one is an interview with the actor, Tony Todd. Now, we all know Tony Todd as the candy man. He's been in many Hollywood movies and, you know, all kinds of stuff, TV and Star Trek. And it's a really great interview with a, a real legend. So, you know, I'm hoping to build that podcast up to get more and more interviews. So any subscriptions or any, uh, you know, tell your friends about it. And I would really appreciate that. So next time on the Twilight Zone podcast, we will look at a most unusual camera. And I'll speak to you then. Bye-bye.